Welcome to the No Film School podcast. We're wrapping up Black Magic Horror Week with a surprise Halloween episode featuring Elsa Kephart, director and co-writer of the award-winning horror comedy slash Fantasia Fest, Darling Slacks. You've probably seen this film on lists if you haven't seen it already. It was named one of the best horror comedies of the 21st century. Slacks does for jeans what Jaws did for the water. Yes, jeans. It's a bloody, cheeky flick that makes you think about a pair of possessed jeans. Yeah, you thought possessed dolls were creepy. Try a pair of form-fitting bootcut pants. This film is now available on Shudder. And in our conversation with Elza, we unpack her journey into becoming a horror filmmaker, starting with her first feature at the age of 24. Elza was particularly candid about her experience. And what stands out to me is her honesty about her ability to change her mind and to shift her perspective about how the film world supports diverse voices. And she also talks about how she's become an activist, a climate activist specifically, and how she uses her platform to tell stories that support her work in this space. Let's be real. The horror of climate change and the ecological emergency that we're in is horrifying. And what better way to drill this point home than by using the genre of horror? We also explore her experience making the film Slacks. They ended up doing two days of reshoots on Black Magic, and, and we unpack the entire process of bringing the film to life and bringing these genes to life. So let's try on this conversation with Elza Kepler. Welcome, Elza, to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure. I really enjoy No Film School's tips. I've used them many times, so I feel like I'm also one of your audience members. <laughs> we love to hear that, especially because I think we've all come to No Film School by way of discovering No Film School and using No Film School, which is such a great way to enter, enter a space like this. Yeah, for sure. So first, before we dig into your movies, I want to hear how did you get your start as a filmmaker? That's a very long process. I realized when I was pretty young that I wanted to make films. I would say I was about 10. I think I saw Star Wars. I forget which one, maybe The Return of the Jedi and Back to the Future. And I was so mm -hmm. impressed by those films. I don't really know why, but they, they, well, Star Wars, we can understand such a classic. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, Back I, to the Future, also <laughs> great. I always felt like I wanted to be an artist since I was young. I just didn't know what kind. And then when I was about that age, I don't know, something clicked in me and I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I mean, I had like a VHS camcorder. So I made little like really terrible films with my friends. Not at all the slick stuff you see, you know, like, I forget who made like a war film when he was eight, like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> that guy, but but I already had a, an interest in like mythical films because my first film, I mean, I don't even know if I should call it a film, but my first attempt, my first sketch was like based on fairy tales. Mm. And then... You know, my, what do you think drew you to to like mythical worlds? I don't know. I mean, because I think horror films and myths are are very 
related. I, I feel like horror fant- fantastical films are sort of like the modern equivalent of, of old timey myths, you know, with monsters and witches and improbable things. So honestly, I don't know. I've always liked really dark subject matter. I used to read Agatha Christie when I was a kid. I never read like Babysitter's Club or anything like that. I was, yeah. I dove into the real dark stuff and my parents were like, what happened? I, you know, we're like nice to you. I'm like, I don't know. I just, it's just the stuff I like. Absolutely. I always would, I I did read Babysitter's Club, but I also would read a bunch of like the America diaries and these super morbid historical fiction pieces where I'd be like, yeah, like all the parents are dead and like, we're just here on the Oregon Trail. (laughs) And I'd play that. Like that was my play. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds sounds about right. I love like R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike and to read with a vampire, all that Anne Rice stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really don't know what drew me to it, but it started pretty young. And then I decided to go to film school. So I went to Emerson College in Boston. My father was American, so I was able to get grants for that. And that really helped like broaden my horizon to go. So I'm born and raised in Montreal, Canada. So it, it helped me to go outside and sort of understand the American system a bit better and it was a really great practical film school. So when I got back, I really had a solid background in production. So I got a job. My first couple of jobs were in American film productions shooting in Montreal. And that really helped give me an idea of how a film was run. And then I think it was a year or two after I graduated college, a friend of mine and I, who, who she had never made films, she was a scientist, decided to make a low budget zombie movie <laughs> just because. Hell yeah. <laughs> and we were going to play in it and shoot it on Super 8. And then as I started to write the script, because I had been writing scripts since I was pretty young. So I think I was actually, you know, had gotten decent at it. We wrote the script and we showed it to people. And they were like, oh my God, that's actually fun. Like you should take it more seriously and raise a little money and shoot it. We were going to shoot it over weekends. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, we got money. Partly because I had been burgled, and so the the insurance money went right to that. Yeah, I mean, it was like three thousand bucks. It wasn't that much, but it it gave us a start. So we shot the film using short ends on like an old technoscope camera. I was silent. You know, we didn't pay anyone. We hardly paid locations. We were young, so we really got away with a lot of like, "Hey, let's just try this." And I think that like goes a long way, you know, to just this sort of naivete. And then it did really well. And I was like, that's right. I love genre films. This was a zombie movie. So I'm like, oh, yeah. that's right. And the genre community was so accepting that I realized, actually, this is my, my place. You know, these are my people. And so I just started, you know, or continued, I should say, writing genre-based stories. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, working in productions for a long, long time. I would get grants, like development grants once in a while. But it took me a long time to to be paid to be a director. You know, I made Slacks in mm-hmm. 2019. We shot it. And so I was, you know, how old am I now? I was, 40, I was 43. So the first time I actually got paid, like, real money to direct, I was in my 40s. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for telling us this. This is so refreshing to hear. Because, you know, people, I think they get discouraged when they're in their mid, when they're coming up on 40 and they're like, well, I've only made one movie. How do I, you know, keep moving forward? 
and I'm not successful. And it's yeah. like, actually, this is a mature career. Like it takes, it takes decades, decades to build to the point where you have a sustainable career. And that's why I think we need to normalize working outside of just working on our films. Like we can't all be the Connor Rafes of the world coming out of college and, and catching the eyes of some <laughs> festival so darlings. I'm so old. <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about how in those early days you were, by the way, I love the way, the French way of saying genre, genre oh, uh, or like that's how we say it. <laughs> Just for our listeners, if you're not used to hearing it, talk to me about how you built community within the horror community? Like, how did you find collaborators? Mm. Was it through like working on each other's work or just being fans of each other's work? How did that, how did that, those earlier, earlier days start to happen? Um, come into play? Well, I, I was really fortunate because I don't know for those of you who know, but Fantasia, the Fantasia Film Festival is, I would say, I think it's the biggest in North America. It's certainly one of the most important ones in the world. And so that started in 96 or 97. Uh, is it in Montreal? It is in Montreal. Yeah, it was started by an actually. Well, there's like many lores of how it started, but I think one of the one of the key co-founders is a good friend of mine, director of photography Karim Hussein. So I would just I just went to Fantasia because I really loved it. I think it started in '96 and then really really started in '97. So just before I went to college. So you know, just going there and seeing films and eventually getting to meet. You know, that back then I was like, oh, these people, they're, I don't, you know, I can't approach them. I'm just some kid. Oh, meanwhile, they were like my age. <laughs> so it took a while to really, to feel comfortable, you know, just talking to people. But one of the first people who really helped out was one of the direct, Fistle directors, Mitch Davis, because he had been a friend of the family student. And she was like, when we were making our Graveyard Live, my first feature, she was like, oh, you're making a zombie movie. You know, I'll reach out to my, my ex-student. So she said, I'll reach out to Mitch Davis. Maybe he can give you some feedback. So he actually wrote us a letter saying like, I'm so impressed by the script. When your film gets done, I'm going to show it in Fantasia, you know, with, on the Fantasia wow. letterhead with like his signature. And so whenever we talked to people about it and showed the letter, they're like, wow, these girls are serious. Because we were girls back then. I was like 23 or something or uh-huh. 24. <laughs> So that really helped. And I bet people were surprised. They're like, two young women, these two girls are making a horror yeah. movie. Like, this isn't normal. <laughs> this isn't. And, and also, no. you're a director. You're directing yeah. it. Like, how many double takes and how many, like, are you sure you want to direct this? How much? What? Like, that was early days. And like, that was the 90s. No, it was like 2000. Actually, I have to say, people weren't weren't like, wait, you want to direct it? They were just so surprised that we were making a zombie film about something uh-huh. so ridiculous as a zombie nurse that I think no one really thought we were going to either make it or anything was really come out going to come out of it. So it was more like, oh, you're, aren't you guys cute making your little yeah. zombie movie? And then we, when we actually made it and it like played at a lot of festivals, we were like, oh shit, you were serious about that. That turned out well. But then I would say the next Amazing. really important step was when Fantasia started having its Frontiers co-production market. That really mm-hmm. opened us, us being my co-writer and that's a collaborator, Slack's collaborator, uh, Patricia Gomez-Slatar. Because now we were like, oh, wow, 
these are like sales agents and producers. They're taking us seriously. One of our projects mm-hmm. got into the pitch forum. And yeah, that really sort of made us connect with people like producers then and there. So I would say Fantasia was really instrumental in giving me a boost and certainly a boost of confidence and just like attending the festival. Then eventually I really met Karim. We became friends and like he would give me all these great tips because his career really took off after antiviral. So he would like give me some awesome, <laughs> awesome, That's awesome tips. Yeah. I, I love that that this particular festival not only created community in supporting in supportive efforts uh, towards your project, but also helped establish you in the industry for, you know, for, for those pitch meetings, for those built meeting sales agents and stuff like that. Can you speak a little bit about the Canadian film industry? Probably the most vague question <laughs> I can ask, but how does it differ? And what are you thinking about when you go into any conversations with filmmakers? Because I'm sure often the default is... You're based in New York and LA mm-hmm. and it's a very like Hollywood centric thing, but there is a thriving community and in in Canada yeah. specifically. Well, specifically in Quebec, because in Quebec, we're very lucky that we have. So there's two funding agencies. There's the Telfilm Canada, which is the federal agency. And then in Quebec, there's what's called SODEC. It's an acronym. It's the Quebec Film Funding Agency, and they're very, very well funded. So it's a I mean, there's good things and bad things about the system. You could be like, how can this be bad? Well, the thing is, if your film doesn't fit into what is considered good, then there's very little chance you'll get funding because there's such a Mm -hmm. high demand for funding, so little funding and such actually good filmmakers that the odds are very, very small. So you need to be like absolutely on top and one of the best. So if you're sort of not there, and it's hard because there isn't the American um, system where you can just like get, I don't know, just, just as an easy word, but you, where, where there are alternative ways. If you know someone rich or if you know, you know someone who has a first look deal or there's other alternatives than the Canadians, than just going to the sort of government trough, what I like to call the government trough. So for example, you know, in Quebec and Canada, horror films were not taken seriously for a very long time. So we couldn't get funding. I mean, I don't want to necessarily just say it's because of that, because I do feel that people were supportive Mm -hmm. in like, you know, you go girls, you know, we, we know you can do it, but not with like the financial backing. But then that changed, I would say, five, seven years ago, the the wind changed and these government agencies realized, oh, my God, you know, horror is actually really, really big. And you don't need big stars to make a a splash and to get into international festivals and to sell. And so they started funding horror films. And that's one of the reasons Slacks got made. It got made through the Canadian system because the, the thinking had changed. But before then, it was like you know, horror film was just like this, this trashy thing and like no one would touch yeah. it. I love that horror has just, it, it, it exists on its own. And I, I think of the film Ginger Snaps, yeah. which is, you know, was one of the, I'd say, films that was pushed aside as not a film that should exist because it was horror. Yeah. But then against all odds, they were able to make it and uh, including casting like the love interest 
I think a week before, mm. like all these things that feel like nightmares. Um, but you know, part of the horror lore. But now there is this, there is this like rich horror community coming out of Canada. And it makes sense, especially with like Fantasia Fest there. And yeah, it's it's very cool lore. I actually want to use this to pivot into a, a niche of storytelling that you have really carved out for yourself, which is social horror mm. or social. Uh, commentary within your storytelling. When has this always been part of your filmmaking journey? Not consciously, for sure. When I was a kid, I remember very clearly when I was young, pretty young again, like 10 or 11, maybe that there's like some sort of developmental stage realizing that companies would want it to make us buy things that we didn't need. <laughs> and so like Cabbage Patch Kids, I was like, I hate Cabbage Patch Kids. You know, everyone wants one because they tell us to want one. But of course, in the end, I caved because I was like, I want to be popular like everyone. And I want to yeah. be a Cabbage Patch Kid. So that was always sort of part of my thinking. And then when I was doing research for Slacks, I just found uh, a documentary called The True Cost. And that really opened up. But it's not, it's not like I wasn't aware of all this stuff. That is one of the reasons I wanted to make Slacks. But there was just like the so many great nuggets that it it gave me basically the whole setup for it. And then in 2018, so before I wrote, after I wrote Slacks and after actually I got the financing, I really realized how badly the climate crisis and ecological crisis was. I think I had sort of known, but it hadn't really hit home. And that's really when, when I really felt it pretty dreadfully. And since, I mean, I had already been, I'd written one other thing that was about mining, the mining, the, the mining industry, but in a more of a mythical vein, which I, I then turned into a pitch for a TV show. So it hasn't been picked up yet. I hope it will. So now, I mean, you can't always dictate what your stories are going to be. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily good to be like, I'm going to make a film about climate change because then it's going to be too didactic, you know, but there's definitely, I, for yeah. a long time after Slacks and I was working on the pitch for a TV show that included like climate activists. Again, I don't know where that's going to go, but I got her an idea just recently, just this weekend, actually Oh yeah. for a, for a really like another, it's like exactly like Slacks. It's like the same recipe, but with different things really like like super socially critical slasher film set around mm. Canada Day. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> but that was because. Which just happened. Ah. We, ju I guess you probably, I see what the inspiration yeah. was. <laughs> I was in a small town that, that it, like is very, has a big Canada Day parade. I mean, I wasn't there for Canada Day, but someone told me about it. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, it's not something that I would go out out of my way, it's, even though it's like, no, I want to make something that's, I want to make something about this. Mm -hmm. The idea will sort of come out of its own, you know, it, it won't. Right. And like Graveyard Life was, I guess, was sort of feminist, even though I wouldn't say it was, I wasn't like, I'm going to make a, a point about it, you know? And then my second film, Go in the Wilderness, was also quite a social critique, but it wasn't me trying to make one. It just, I'm critical about certain aspects of society. So they make their right. way into my films. But now I really feel like what's with what's going on in the world, it's hard. I would say it's hard for artists 
I would I would hope that it's hard for artists not to have this make their way into their work right. because you know we are talking about the like <laughs> extinction of civilization as I say as I'm laughing it's terrifying. like oh, 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 it's oh. the most horrifying thing well we have to <laughs> yeah have I think it's very normal for us to have a reaction because it's so overwhelming yeah. and it's so I mean it's it it is a way to process it all yeah. I also think you highlighting this idea of like, you don't go in necessarily with this intention. Though it's very easy to find the horror in reality. Yeah. I mean, you found the horror in retail by by researching and then, but but I, I, I've i made the mistake of going in with a goal mm. of, I want to show why true crime is exploitative and why prestige true crime is exploitative, for example. And going in with that intention, the story suffers. Yeah. Because, and I had to learn that the hard way. But I do think that it's very easy to think that you can rely on the social justice angle. And, and, and that is why I think sometimes it's better to let the story unfold and then figure out what is the best story to tell for this thing that I'm exploring. Obviously, setting up a world where you're exploring, for example, the horrors of retail and fast fashion and I also in greenwashing yeah. and and I also was brought back to the stories of Dove Charney at American yes. Apparel and the sort of like yes. abuse at every level yep. that happens. And I mean, there's just so much. I, I, I That's why I think horror is such a good way to be exploring this because you can find the, just the horror and the reality of it all, but also finding that balance. Yeah. No, I mean... I think it's, it, I think you have to get like, I think this is what I've realized over my million years of, of, of writing <laughs> is that no matter how strange the idea or like the concept or whatever, if it's coming from really an unconscious organic place, that's the story you need to follow. That will be the truest story, which will resonate. But if you try to, to have something conscious and like, logical then that will not ring true i think it'll ring very didactic so it's sometimes even i find myself being like i'm gonna make a story about this i i don't anymore because it it just doesn't it's not organic i have to say you know and it's it's hard sometimes you want to do some write something about something and then sometimes like the thing you're most excited about it's something totally random, like a romantic comedy. And you're like, no, why, am right. I, why do I want to write a romantic comedy? Right. The world is like falling apart. But then if you follow that intuition, I think something true and that will resonate with other people will unfold. So you have to like trust the unfolding, trust that little grain of inspiration of, of an idea that might be totally ludicrous is tugging at you. Because it's there's something true in, in that in that grain, and that's what's going to make the pearl. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to talk about how you've come up in this industry as a woman, how that has evolved over the years, but also how you approach leadership when you're directing. Sure. So, you know, I was raised by two parents who really always taught me that I could do whatever I wanted. My mother worked, you know, she had a pretty prestigious job. So to me, you know, the fact that I was a woman didn't even cross my mind that I couldn't do something 
And I went to film school and it was very 50-50, you know, uh, in the in the 90s, before the internet started, kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a different time. A different time. But but so I, I didn't feel any sort of imbalance in film school. I was one of the three people whose, you know, senior year projects were picked. So I was getting a lot of encouragement from my professors, you know. So I didn't feel this sort of glass ceiling. And then when I got back to Canada, I mean, I made two films. Now they were outside of the system, you know, funded, self-funded and crowdfunded. And I didn't quite sort of cotton on that maybe. And I was applying with more, I would say, like dramatic project that had one or two that were a bit more mainstream, although not that mainstream. And I wasn't getting funding. And I thought maybe it's because my work was in English and in Quebec. Most films funded are in French, although they have a sort of quota system. And then I remember very distinctly a, a female organization called Realisatrice Equitable, which is roughly translated as like fair trade female directors, because realisatrice in French is the French word for, for directing, the, the French female form. And so they're like, oh, you're one of like, I don't know how many women in Quebec that have made a feature film. We want to include you in this book. And I was like, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And then I was, I wasn't that, not that young to be so like sassy or maybe ignorant both at, <laughs> at once there at the end of the photographer and the, who had interviewed me as well was like, so do you want to join the realisatrice equitable? And I was like, what for? <laughs> she was like, cause we fight for women's rights. And I was like, I don't need anyone to fight for my rights. It's equitable. Right. And she's like, I'm going to send you a little booklet that we wrote that maybe will make you think twice about it. And I read it and I was so devastated because what I had suffered was exactly what they were describing, where you don't get funding, you get passed over, your films are great, but but no one wants to fund your second film. You know, Mm -hmm. you always feel like there's an excuse as to why your films aren't being funded, even though people love it. It's so great. And I like cried and burst into tears. I was so angry. I was like, because Graveyard Live had done really, really well. And I thought, you know, someone from the States would swoop in and be like, you're amazing. Here's $5 million. What else do you want to direct? That did not happen. Well, male peers of my cohort, festival cohort, went on to direct stuff, you know. And so that was a real eye-opener for me. And I was like, oh, my fucking Christ. Like, oops, sorry. Oh, my God. God dang. We can swear. God dang. We swear on here. This is a safe safe podcast. Also, that deserves a swear. How fucking frustrating. And and I was extremely mad um, about that for a while, especially since I'd made my second feature, Go in the Wilderness, uh, which is about how, like, God created man and woman equally. and then man was like, I don't like this. God, can you make me another? <laughs> and God was like, sure. So, so it's about the myth of Lilith. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it took me a while to be like, fuck this shit. And then I got, I got over it, but I realized, but that was really eye-opening because I thought, oh, it's not about me. You know, that's exactly what that article said. It was like, it's not mm-hmm. about you. This is how it is. So we, we, we take it back into ourselves and we think it's about us. And that destroys a lot of women, not a lot anymore. I hope not. But in back in the day, I think it, it silenced and discouraged a lot of women. 
Yeah. And so I read a lot. I read a lot of books that helped me actually in my thirties. It was a real growing time because I read books about women, about like, I'm a super introvert. So it, mm-hmm. I read about being an introvert, all stuff that made me understand who I was more and how to, how I could be a director and still be like, you know, a, not a very loud. Authentic. Yeah, exactly. Like you wouldn't say, if you met me, you wouldn't say, oh, she's an introvert, but you know, I don't take a lot of space. If I'm at a party, I'll just hang out in a corner. You know, I'm not the like director who takes up all the room. And that's what in people's minds a director is, you know, who, who tells right. everyone to do. And so I had to come to terms with the fact that actually being a director is just having a vision, <laughs> you know? And, yeah, and if you like yeah. whisper it to people, that's okay. You don't need to shout it. That's okay. <laughs> it's actually, again, so refreshing to hear this because I think in the past I've I felt discouraged because I'm not going through the motions of directing what I think is and it or, or the I, I recommend to our listeners who who this is resonating with listening to our podcast episode with Saim Sadiq the director of Joyland who also talks about his directing style and coming on being a quieter presence on set mm. I also recommend Kelly Freeman Craig who directed Are You There God It's Me Margaret. Mm another person who came in and wanted to intentionally create a safe space that that is leading differently with strength and warmth. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, Elza, what were some of the books that you read <laughs> that, that really connected you? I read this great book called The Confidence Code about women and confidence and how, you know, sometimes women hold themselves back because they think like they need to be perfect and they need to have thing, everything figured out before they jump in. And so they just don't get the experience that is needed for people to have confidence in you because you're just waiting for everything to to be perfect. I have to say, I didn't have Mm -hmm. a problem making a low budget zombie movie when I was in my mid twenties, but I think later in life that sort of started catching up with me, that thinking. So it's almost like I was a kid, I went to film school, I made a movie and I was still like, yeah, like a little kid, like everything's great. And then the adult world's caught up with me and I started to imbibe yeah. this crap. And then I read actually a great f- book called Hope for Film, I think it's called by, mm-hmm. by Ted Hope. And what, what I really liked is that he talked about Ang Lee and how Ang Lee is very quiet and he wouldn't necessarily speak up if he didn't like something. So there was a whole epi- episode, I guess, in, the, in Chapter. <laughs> not episode, but like chapter about how Ang Lee, about Ang Lee and how about at one point he had some, like someone was proposing a blue dress for, for a, character and Ted Hope could tell that Ang Lee didn't really like it, but he couldn't really, he didn't speak up. And so Ted Hope being a great producer was like, Ang Lee, Ang, I can tell you don't really like that dress. And he was like, no, no, it's fine. And then later on, he was like, you don't like that dress, right? And Ang Lee was like, no, I like the brown one. And so it took a producer to really understand how this person worked. And I was like, fuck, if Ang Lee's like this, then fuck this shit. You know, I was just like, who cares? (laughs) <laughs> if I don't know exactly on like at this moment what I want. I remember I was with the sound designer and, and mixer for Grigar Live. And at one point they asked me something and I was like, oh, I don't know. And both of them were like, wow, that's so refreshing. A male director would have just pretended and like gone on and on and on. But you're just being honest and saying you don't know. And that's great. We'll figure it out together. I was like, all right. Oh, that's a positive thing. Okay. I love that. I actually think that that's in the last couple of months, I've finally come to terms with it's okay to not know yet. And especially in this world where hot takes are 
very in vogue and 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 we're flying at the speed of the fastest we ever had in consuming information mm. and making decisions. I think it's okay. And I think there's so much value in taking space to like think and think again yeah. and question and process and come back to it and then make a decision. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, right away, like your instinct is like, no, blue. And sometimes you don't know. I remember Karim told me that actually. He was like, people are going to question you on set no matter what. Like, just be prepared that people are going to think you don't know what you're doing. I was like, okay, great. And then he said, if you don't know, and let's, I think now things are different and especially women are more respected. He's like, if you don't know, just say, hold on, I'm editing it in my mind. So that it gives you the That's time great. to really pretend that you're going through a process. Meanwhile, you're just trying to figure out if you want the blue dress or the brown dress without looking hesitant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. But And they're like, wow, they're editing in real time. I actually like... That is part of the the thing that I'm like, how will this cut together? Yeah. And, but of course, I didn't know that when I was first getting started. I was like, I'm going through the motions of directing, action, cut, great take. Everyone's laughing in the room. It's definitely going to translate to the screen. And it didn't do that. So, yeah. No, it's, I mean, everyone has their own process. And I think, you know, finding producers that really understand you and your process, like the producers for Slacks were awesome because... How'd you find them? Well, one is my longtime friend, Patricia Gomez-Latar, who we I co-wrote the story for Graveyard Live and she produced it, knowing absolutely nothing. She The scientist. Yes, she would be a good person to have on this podcast because she went from like yes. being a scientist to being a film producer <laughs> without and knowing what she was doing. Probably one of the best backgrounds you can have as a producer is being a scientist. Probably because she's extremely detail oriented but she's she's also an introvert like me although you would know it but she is and so she understands my process and she knows that I sometimes I just need time to figure it out and sometimes I need like quiet time and quiet space so she really is like a good director psychologist which I think a producer should be like Ted Hope you know and then they were good at providing me with what I needed and people that I could work well with who would understand my process and give me room or give me support when I needed it, but not be like, oh God, she doesn't know. Oh my God, what's going on? She she doesn't know what she's doing. Like, I think it's really important to have producers that you can trust and who can trust you. Even if they're less experienced, I would say it's better to have someone like that on your team than someone who's more experienced, but will, I mean, on paper, right? But but will not um, necessarily give you what you need to make the best film. So I met Patricia through friends when we were in our ni- 19 and then we became friends through making Graveyard Live. And then the Slacks producer, uh-huh. Anne-Marie, they, I met her because, well, I'd known her around town, but she, we pitched Slacks at Frontiers, the Fantasia market. That's why I'm bringing uh-huh. it up. And because we were given like a spotlight to pitch as women, she saw right. our pitch and she was like, I want this. So Again, I think it's really important for women, especially women or people who might not be at ease with schmoozing and being the loud person to have a platform to pitch when everyone has to listen to you and you don't have to like be the bell of the the cocktail hour. But the, yeah. yeah, yeah. The bell of the networking event. Yeah. And you can just people will listen to you. And that's what happened. She was like, this is amazing. So that's how I met those two wonderful ladies. 
how do you communicate with your producers, especially in the earlier phases? Mm. Are you guys meeting weekly? Are you sending email updates? Like, what is your preference for communicating? Like when we get funding? Because there's years and years of communication before you actually get funding, at least for the grant system. I mean, I guess it's the the production side you guys are interested in. It depends the phase. Like, I like communicating... Well, there's several ways. It depends what we're communicating about. Like, if it's going over back and forth, like really pragmatic things, email or text message is fine. But if it's really like hardcore, important decisions that I like to meet as preferable in person, if not on Zoom, because I do think like seeing the person is, is important. And I think that it's easy, very easy on email or text message to misinterpret someone's emotions and intentions. So if there's mm-hmm. something thorny to discuss, I'd rather do it in person. And I don't remember how we did it for Slacks. I think it depends like how far you are in prep. You know, we would definitely communicate often enough. I mean, in prep, Patricia and I work very closely together. And Marie as well, but Patricia and I, like, for example, we did a lot of location scouting for Slacks ourselves because we, we knew we needed time to to find the right location you know as as it gears up we we would meet at the production office regularly obviously i think it's never bad to have too much communication especially in a film and to have it with the people mm-hmm. in the room as much as possible like weekly i think we had weekly prep meetings because everything you know like just having a, an in-person conversation or on the phone can spare you like endless text messaging. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's, that's my, that's my preference. And then, in, you know, in post it would taper down. And then when we had something to show, we'd show, or if I was struggling with something, I'd, you know, email them, but they're also in their, you know, late forties and mid fifties. So I think, the communication style is maybe a bit different. Like we, I know a friend of mine who is directing something and her producing team is younger and she's my age and she's having a hard time because the the communication is, is a lot by text message. And I was like, Oh my God, I don't know how I would do that. I I feel one of the things that, because I lose things over text message and, and it's way too much, but my producer and I, we treat WhatsApp like more like email. Mm. Like it's a, it's like a long, constant conversation between the two of us, but we put documents in there mm. and we can have it pulled up in on our desktops oh. so we can, we can write and type up these long things versus like, I don't know, text message. I guess technically you have iMessenger, but like there's something about it being searchable mm. and navigatable like an inbox that helps a lot but we still have the immediacy of you know I can not worry about checking my email because I know if it's urgent it'll come through and I can also mute my phone so only WhatsApp is coming through and only the VIP stuff is coming through from my producer oh that's a good tip (laughs) hot tip okay now I have another very practical question for you how do you find your heads of departments and over the course of the years, obviously, Slack's had a much bigger budget than than your first and second feature. Oh. But how do you talk to them and set expectations for the scope of the film? And how do you sort of figure out if they're going to be a good fit for you? I don't know. I mean, I set 
send them the script and if they're excited about it. And it's also like a, a vibe thing, you know, if I feel like they get the vibe and, and we're on the same wavelength, then that's really how I'll trust them. I mean, obviously if they have, I mean, experience does come into play, but it's not the only thing, you know, you can have someone who's less experienced, but more eager and be a much better partner than someone who's more experienced, but has less to, has less interest in like making a crazy film. Expectations. I mean, it's like make a good film and don't be an asshole. <laughs> That's my expectations. Yep, yep. Sometimes that doesn't work. Love that. <laughs> but it's pretty simple. It's like, do you get the project? What are you bringing to it? You know, and, and do I, am I going to jive with you? I mean, it doesn't always work. Some of my collaborations mm-hmm. have been more fruitful than others, but like my editor for Go in the Wilderness and Slacks, I really like working with her. I thought she really understood and she was really dedicated. And so we, I brought her on for Slacks again and she did an amazing job. And again, you know, it was, I think, a definitely like a woman thing, like, but she's never made a horror film before. Can she really edit like killer gore scenes? And I was like, she's a good editor. Like, who cares? And then and then she did a great job actually making us care about the pants because she's very sensitive. Yeah. So yeah. She was really... Like, I love the pants. She was like, oh, we have to care about the pants. Like, you know, we have to... The emotion has to... So she was really thinking about the emotion. And I think it's her contribution that made Slacks not just work as a, as a like fun slasher, but really have that sort of emotional resonance. So I don't have any... Absolutely genius tips (laughs) because no this is also valuable (laughs) some I mean just sort of pushing back against even even what you said about like well like could you do this like slasher horror thing one of my favorite stories is the fact that the co-editing team of hereditary were Noah Baumbach's editors they're family drama editors and then they came in and made the most horrifying movie I've ever seen but that makes sense because it is a family drama you know yeah, exactly. Turn exactly, exactly. No. I have as we wrap up here, I have a question about how if you're not an introverted person. I see, I see myself as a an introverted extrovert, especially as I get older, I need the time to recharge. Mm-hmm. I think my partner is a extroverted introvert. Definitely needs the time to recharge, but he's can turn on when when somebody is more introverted. If you're working with somebody who's more introverted, how can you support them? How can you create space for them? Mm, Definitely give them time and space to figure things out. Introverts, we need, sometimes we can have a solution right away, but often we need time to really reflect. And so not rushing an introvert, even though if you need, like sometimes you need, I need an answer right away, but just five minutes of being like, I'm going to take five minutes and step outside, have like a protein bar that, that sometimes that's all you need to, you just need that like space. So I would yeah. say that, and then not overloading them, making sure they have little breaks, making sure like Patty would be, it was great. And she made sure I had my protein bars. <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with being an introvert, but everyone has their thing. Their one thing. Like, if, if you're being overwhelmed, just being able to tell when an introvert's being overwhelmed and that they, they just need to recharge. It's basically 
it's basically that. And if, if an introvert's not speaking, it's not because they don't know what, what to say. It's just that they're processing. And so you need to give them that time. I say I'm like a Pentium 2 processor. So I'm slow, mm-hmm. slow processor. It's, it's realizing that we live in a very extroverted leaning world. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, being an extrovert is a good thing, but is it like our producer, Anne-Marie, is, I would say is an extrovert, a people person, you know, she's great at that, but introverts also have a, have, what's the word? Value. Value. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Not to be too capitalist about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a great, it's a great reminder. And also for us who are skewing more extroverted, there is also power in slowing down and taking a beat mm-hmm. and eating a protein bar <laughs> to think things through. You know, yeah. there's a, I know I live at this level of high alert urgency. Mm. Oh, they need an answer right now. Mm. And then I sometimes attach emotion to it in a way that doesn't help mm. and doesn't necessarily support making the right decision. And I think to take that pressure off and to take a beat and to eat a protein bar. Every decision you should at least have, I think, the, the time it takes to eat a protein bar. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, this is ha- we just fixed filmmaking <laughs> on this podcast. I actually think this will save lives, save hours and millions of dollars. Probably because if you just take the time to think, you know, logically without pressure, that will save trouble in the long run. And I think actually one thing that is very problematic for me at least is reading emails on my phone. There's something mm-hmm. about looking at a small screen and not having the scope that I've made so many mistakes by reading my emails on my phone. So I try not to do that unless I'm really looking for an email, like where something's coming up. But I would say yeah. those are my tips. <laughs> I love that. Do you bring your laptop to set? No. No. No, I, I'm still the old fashioned printed script. I need to like write things on it and I make little thumbnail drawings. I really need to have like a hands-on, non, non-digital hands-on approach to my script. I need to touch it and be able to like flip pages, make notes. Like, I guess I I understand that it's, it's good to cut down on paper. And if you like being digital, that's more power to you. But I can't like, even just making notes on the script, I usually can do it online, but I mean, on my computer, but sometimes if I really need to figure something out, I have to print the script and I have to have it tangibly in my hands. I think it's like a human, like animal thing. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I think that is very important. And I, what, what do you carry it in? Do you have a binder? Do you have a, this is how nitty gritty we get in. (laughs) We go here at no film school. And like, do you have colored pens? Yes. Do you, are you a sticky note person? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I just have a regular old three ring binder with like all my, all this important stuff, like script and the breakdown. And then I have a combination of shot lists and thumbnail sketches because I like to really get an idea what the shot is like. And then, yeah, I definitely have different colored pens. <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that. And yeah, post-its, all the, the stuff to just kept make, bring the thing out of your head. Because I think if something is in your computer, it's still sort of in your head it's not in the real physical world so i needed mm-hmm. to be in the physical world 
When you're writing, are you writing longhand? Oh, no. Uh, no. Are you writing with note cards? <laughs> no, I'm not that old school, no. No, no, I, I write on my computer. I've been write, working on final drafts since college. Nice, nice. But there's definitely a time where, yeah, I, I break out the old, the old post-it notes and I have like a big, you know, I don't know, eight foot long piece of cardboard I scavenge from the, the trash usually. And then I'll yes. I'll put the sticky notes in their different colors and then the different plot lines I have different like shades and stuff. So that really, really helps that that I really need to do that when I'm I'm in the breakdown of the script structure. Yeah. But no, I I don't write <laughs> I don't I mean after all that I'm like, no, I write on my computer. <laughs> uh, no, but to know when you need to get into your head, yeah. which I think sometimes writing is so in your head yeah. and just translating yeah, exactly. it onto into final draft, you're still in the forming mode. But then getting it out there, I mean, you're you're getting me in touch with the tangible print that I need right now. So I appreciate it. Now, last question for you. As we wrap up here, and we'd love to have you back on the podcast. This this has been such a wonderful conversation. But what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers? Somebody who's maybe about to go out and shoot their first feature. Their first feature. I mean, it depends on so many things, like how much time you have. And I would say what I do, which I had to to learn how to do, is really, and this might seem mixed like of course this is what filmmakers do but it did to be totally honest it took me a long time it's like i'll see shots in my mind and i'll see like how i want to shoot certain parts of the film and it's almost like rewriting it in my mind but letting give myself the time to rewrite it in my mind or on the sticky notes or not the sticky notes on the on my like thumbnail sketches and Mm -hmm. then then I know what the film is sort of trying to be because it's before I get on the set, I'm like, okay, for some reason, this person is always going to be seen at a high angle, but it's also a very organic way. Cause I've read tons of books where it's like, you need to figure out exactly the angles. And if you do it like this, it means that. And if you use this color, it means that. And that's not how I work. I work in a very organic way. So it's like, why do I keep seeing this character or this location shot from this angle. I don't know, but I, mm. I, I will trust that there's some weird pattern. And so I'll just in, instinctively write down how I see certain parts of the film or all of it. And then a pattern will emerge. And then I'll be mm. like, oh, it's because it's about this. Oh, now I get mm. it. You know, like slacks was all, everything. I kept seeing things through like cameras and at high angles and and like mm-hmm. people looking at people behind their, their bits because it's all about being observed and being sort of preyed upon by the consumer culture yeah. that makes prey of, of us, you know, and what is a prey, but something that someone is watching. So I would say that's, that's the most important thing because it's really uh, so much pressure being on the set that you have to f- really know how you're going to tell your story visually. And if you give yourself the space and time to figuring out beforehand, but in a very organic way. So it rings true to you. I would say that's mm-hmm. important. And then actors, I mean, everyone's like, oh, this is how you talk to actors, blah. I mean, the, really the most important thing is to cast good actors. It sounds so stupid, but mm. if you cast good actors, you almost don't have to do anything. That is 
Yeah. My, ex- my hard worn ex- weren't. Oh my gosh. Hard won experience. That is the most. <laughs> that is the incredible advice. It, and it's true. It's like, just really make sure you cast the right people and they don't have to look like what you think in your mind. You know, mm-hmm. if, the, if you cast like in Slacks, Craig, I had a very different look for him in my mind, but no one we found was right until we found Brett Donahue, who blew us away with his, his audition, his like self tape. And I was like, yes, this is the guy, like, look, like he's so nuts, like he can go for it, you know? And, and so it's someone who gets you excited and you're like, Ooh, how are they going to do this? Ooh, if you're excited about their audition and if there's something like it, maybe it won't be necessarily right. Like they won't necessarily hit it right on, but if you, you want to watch them, if you turn the sound off and you want to watch them, then that's a good actor because they'll be compelling. So that would say, wow. and if you turn the, the, this is something I learned in a, in a workshop. And if you turn the picture off and you hear them and their voice is compelling, then, then that's a winning team. Cause sometimes actors don't either can't bring you into the screen with their eyes or their voice isn't trained enough to be convincing. I don't know how to explain it, but that's a good way to cast. If you want to watch them, it's really that yeah. simple. It's it 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 feels like something also that you take you you have to you know it when you know it but yeah. like if I think it also takes some of those reps and also probably making some mistakes yeah, along the way sure. to then know like okay this this is the thing the je ne sais quoi yeah. and if- of it all to speak French <laughs> as. We do in Montreal. <laughs> and if, you know, you cast someone and bless them, they, they just don't, you know, deliver for... They're not getting there. Yeah, for whatever reason. Don't make an actor feel bad. Like, just be as nice to them as possible because making them feel shitty is just going to block them even more. So just yeah, be like, okay, they're not giving me what I want. But, but this is when you really edit in your head and you really have to be like, okay, I need this bit. So let me get them to say this bit like this and and you you have to yeah. piece together their performance which isn't ideal but you you can and that's better to have the right pieces uh than to have like a uninspired performance and then just if you if you're nice to the actors and you do your best with like all the 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 this is a whole other conversation, but the, the like words and the adverbs and you can get stuff out of an actor piecemeal like that. You can, if they're just for mm-hmm. not getting it, then, then, then that, but that's okay. That's all, that's also happens to great directors. So it's just, right. you just need to make the best of the situation and, and uh, get the bits you need. That's what you get the bits you need. Yeah. Get the bits you need. <laughs> Don't be an asshole. No. Be human. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. Eat, eat a power bar. <laughs> and, and if you're not getting the bits you need, go eat a power yeah. bar. Come back. Yeah. And then maybe you'll be like, oh, this is, this is exactly, we need to shoot it like this. And then all of a sudden, yeah, something yeah. that wasn't working, you're like, oh, it was just the right, the wrong angle or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, Elza. Yeah. And congratulations on this journey. And we can't wait to see what happens next. Please keep in touch with sure. us here at No Film School. And, and thank you. Ben, it's a pleasure.
Thank you so much, Elza, for joining us and for carrying us through the end of Horror Week. It's been delightfully horrific. And I loved our conversation. I, again, want to underline the candidness that she brought to the table. It's so refreshing when we get to speak to filmmakers who take us through their journeys and their ability to grow and change as a filmmaker and how they perceive this industry. You can get more No Film School across the internet in many different ways. Nofilmschool.com, of course. We are teeming with articles about horror and more. Anything for your filmmaking needs. You can also like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms. You can follow us on social media at No Film School. Let us know what you thought of this episode by emailing podcast at nofilmschool.com. Thank you so much for listening and happy Halloween. <laughs>